It spread like a consuming fire. People have been brought all over, from all over the surrounding areas. You got laypersons and leaders and Levites were brought out for a very specific occasion. And Andy has sort of elaborated on this. They were doing what? They were communicating the work that God had done. They were commemorating his work. They were also, as Buster showed us, they were communicating God's word. But here in this text, they're celebrating God's worth. And it's all within the framework of what we today observe as an elaborate gathering of worshipers. But what made this gathering significant for them? What made the gathering significant is that it was a joyous occasion. It was, Jonathan, a joyful occasion. Now, I use that word joy real intentionally because it's woven throughout this particular passage. I mean, I love how this vivid imagery uh, that describes this, it paints a portrait for us and it almost leaps off the page. You have Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. The Bible says that they sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them. Now, let me, let me just pause right here because I believe that biblical worship, true biblical worship, even in today's day and age, it ought to interrupt your life. These Levites were brought from wherever they were. It's like, hey, stop what you're doing. There's something more important than the football game on Sunday. There's something more important than what your errands that you have planned. There's something important about biblical worship. These Levites were brought from wherever they were. And the word of God says that they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with what? Thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. Now, that's a beautiful depiction. Can you imagine the, the zeal and the excitement surrounding all of these festivities? Chapter 12, verse 31 says, uh, Nehemiah appointed two large processions to do nothing but give thanks. Verse 35 says, the priest's sons, was, they come through with, with trumpets, just like a New Orleans funeral. They come singing and playing their trumpets. It's an elaborate and joyous scene on this morning. Chapter 12, verse 42 says that the singers... Look at the CSB version. It says the singers didn't sing. It says they sang. Now, you know they had to be doing some singing. If, you know, the, the Christian sovereign version says they didn't just sing, but they sang because it's a joyous occasion. Chapter 12, verse 43 says they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. You know why? Because it was a joyous occasion. And perhaps this can serve as a shot in the arm for some of us who find ourselves yawning our way through corporate worship. Because these people in this text, they have a joy that comes from within. I mean, there's no hint of them being compelled to be joyful. No one had to twist their arms. There was no pumping or prodding joy out of them by a worship leader. They didn't come with their arms folded, mad and upset about someone taking their parking spot. They weren't busy complaining about the ushers or the song selections or the bad preaching. They didn't show up like auditors and judges on American Idol trying to verify and validate other people within this hierarchy of entertainment. You know, we couch it in language like, oh, he's bringing the heat or she's solid, or man, what an anointing. They were not looking for someone to spark this thermal sensation within them. No, they showed up to the camp with their own fire. And even more so, our God, who is a consuming fire, gives joy that consumes like fire. It spreads like fire. It ignites within us like fire. Chapter 12, verse 43, it said it. You said it. You read it. It says, God had given them the joy. And let me tell you something. The only real joy that's acceptable for worship is the kind that comes from God. 
God gives us the ability to worship him, and the only kind of worship he accepts is what has come from him. But look at how joy has spread. The Bible says the women and the children also celebrated. That's why we don't send kids after a certain age. That's why we don't send them out, because we believe they have just as much right to worship the Father as we do. The Bible says that Jerusalem was rejoicing. Look at it, and it says, and it was heard far away. That speaks directly to us, some of us, who think that the corporate gathering is only for whispering and quiet. No, the Bible says that their joy, their celebrating of God was heard far away. And the joy that God gives Sahara, it is contagious. Zach, it spread on that day from one Hebrew to another, and today it captures the hearts and envelops the imagination of those of us who are bonded with the revelation of Jesus Christ as the lion, the lamb, the leader, the one who was learning, the one who has loosed his two dogs on each and every one of us in his room. You know about those two dogs I'm talking about. You got the one dog, the one who bites. Yeah, that's Grace. His name is Grace. He barks and says, I'm going to bite you, but it's not going to hurt because I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. But he's got another dog named Mercy. That dog doesn't bite because if he bites you, it will hurt. He says, I'm not going to give you what you do deserve. Grace and mercy. Grace and and mercy. Like old Deacon Black at Mount Pilgrim Baptist Church, he would express grace in this way. He would say, he's been better to me than I can even be to myself. And my grandmother would talk about mercy, and she would say, the Lord has protected me from seen and unseen dangers. Now let me park here, because if you're anything like me, you know that God in his mercy has blocked and protected you from some things that you really had coming to you. Perfect people, just be quiet, don't even nod your head. But I'm talking to people who had look over their life and say, God, I, you have loose grace upon me. Even when I was wayward and stubborn and rebellious and defiant and disobedient, oh yes, when I think about those heavenly hounds, I have to say thank you, Jesus, for grace and mercy. Am I right about it? But this double diatribe about doggies is not the conclusive concept. I'm done with the doggies for right now. There is something that I believe we can glean from these two parties who make their way down to the temple taking separate routes. The imagery in this passage is it's brilliant. It's beautiful. You have these two processions essentially separating at the dung gate, which is the entrance, which is on the east side. They, they walk on the wall towards the temple of God in an extremely detailed display of pageantry. But this march towards the temple isn't just an ordinary trek. It's not just another walk to the wall or just to another building. Look closely at the text. You'll see it right there. This processional is very much a part of the ceremony. It allows space for each participant to do two important things. Two things I'm suggesting we could do a little bit more of as we approach our worship gatherings, even on today. It allows them to see and to remember. There's more going on here than meets the eyes. It's beyond just the tertiary level. It gets down to the center. Because they're walking past the fountain gate, the water gate, the east gate, the inspection gate, the old city gate, the fish gate, the horse gate, the sheep gate. And all of these memorials, all of these gates have a special significance, Andy. They have a special history. There's a respected story, at least to the Hebrew people of this time. These two groups walked by on their way towards separate paths, and they saw and they remembered. James K. Smith has an idea of what's being practiced 
what's being observed here. He states this. He says that no habit, no routine, no practice is neutral. He suggests that all practices are ultimately trying to make us into a certain kind of person. There's a shaping going on here. He says uh, one of the most important questions we need to ask is just what kind of person are my habits trying to produce? And to what end is such a practice maintained? In this sense, he says that our practices, our rituals, our habits, whether it's brushing your teeth eight times on the left side and right side, they're all liturgical in function. In this sense that they are aimed at shaping our identity by shaping our desire for what we love, what we envision as the kingdom, what we see as the ideal for human flourishing. Every routine is a ritual. Every routine has liturgical functions. Whether it's watching CNN every day or Fox News or MSNBC, whether it's watching MTV or listening to your favorite podcast, going to the grocery store or walking into the mall, uh, there is liturgical function. These things are shaping us. And when we come together on a Sunday morning, the Bible instructs us that we are de-shaping you from what the world has told you. The world has told you that you're not worth anything, but the word of God says that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. There's a reshaping going on. Jesus, The word of God says, be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a reshaping, a renewing, there's a reshaping going on. That's why there's reason why we come together every Sunday and we lift our hands. There's some shaping going on. Some of you, that's not really your personality, but I encourage you to lift your hands anyway because sometimes faith catches up to feeling. There's reshaping going on. That's why we come together, Matt, and that's why we confess sin. There's a reshaping going on. These, 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 these liturgies, these things that we're doing when we gather are shaping something within us. They're trying to produce something within us. That's why we confess sin, and that's why we come to listen to a message about a risen Savior. This is a reshaping going on as we are doing this. We are being shaped. Now, one group... On their way to the temple, they saw and they remembered the sheep gate. You know, where the high priests, like Eliashib of their day, and even the high priests before them, they would perform rituals of worship and cleansing on behalf of the people of Israel. They saw the sheep gate and remembered the long-standing history of worship within the household of God that included the sacrifice of sheep. They saw the sheep gate and they remembered there's another group, but they saw the city of David, and they remembered the house of David. So not only did they see the sheep gate, but they also saw the steps of David. They remembered the household of David, which probably conjured up for them vivid scenes of fervently zealous passion for God in worship. They saw the steps of David and thought about how David danced passionately before the Lord, so much so that his wife, Saul's daughter, ridiculed him for it. The Bible says that David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod, and the ark was entering the city of David, and Saul's daughter looked upon David from her window and she saw him dancing and leaping and celebrating God because it was a joyous, joyous occasion. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God had been brought back. The presence of God had been brought back to the holy city. And so McCall, she calls out to David. She says, you've exposed yourself like a vulgar person would expose himself. 
She talks down to him. She's taking this extra reverent route. She says, she takes a haughty and arrogant posture. You know, it doesn't take all of that. She's got her nose in the air. And David looks at her and says, my praise was before the Lord who chose me over your daddy and his whole family to appoint me to rule over the whole law of, Lord, of, the, of the Lord's people of Israel. He says, I will dance before the Lord and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. Perhaps on today, we can be a little bit more like David as we enter into worship. Perhaps on today, we can be less concerned with how it looks and how vulnerable I might be and who's watching me and, and even begin to embrace this concept of humbling ourselves, offering to God a sacrifice of praise that is undignified. Paul says, I boast in my shortcomings. And that's what we need in our Western developed culture and our Western developed sense of Christianity. It's all about how you look. It's all about looking good. It's all about feeling nice, coming in and sitting in here in nice air conditioning. We never want to push ourselves forward and really worship God because we don't realize that faith oftentimes catches up to feelings. And that's even present here in the element of corporate worship. That's why when Cody uh, admonishes you all to shout unto God and to lift your hands and to really, as, as white people say, get after it. That's why he's doing that. He's saying that this thing is shaping you and our God is worthy. He's worthy of that kind of undignified prayer. Amen? Amen. There's a shaping going on. There's an undignified praise. And this is what the people of Israel are seeing. And this is what they are remembering. Listen to this on their way to worship. But see, you've got, you got the other group. You got the other group. They saw the fountain gate and they remember that pool of Siloam. This is where even back then and before then, new converts to the Jewish faith could wash themselves in order to become ceremonial, ceremonially clean before fully entering into the city. They remembered, oh yeah, back before the city was destroyed, this is where people, many people who had been captured or people, refugees, they would come and they would wash themselves saying, I want to be fully embraced into this community. But even today, we can look at that pool and we see it, right? And we remember something. We remember that this is the same location where Jesus sent the man who had been born blind. John chapter 9 says that uh, as he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, he said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but for the work of God so that it might be displayed in him. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. It means sin. I believe on today God is he's sending us to the corporate gathering, not so that we can point out each other's sin. No, no, no. He's sending us to the corporate gathering. Why? So that he might be glorified. That's why we come together and we raise our hands and we lift our voice and we shout and we do all that. It's all to the glory of God. That's why Ben plays the keyboard and Cody plays the guitar. That's why Andy gets up here and preaches. That's why we have people who are working in the parking lot and are welcoming you into it. That's why we encourage you to get involved in GC and DNA and to give toward the work because it is all for the glory of God. That's biblical worship on this morning. They saw and remembered that pool. They saw and remember they were being shaped on their way. They ain't even got to worship. They're on their way to worship. That's why we don't just jump from on a Sunday morning ESPN top 10 right into worship. There's a processional, there's a shaping that we have to enter into. 
We look at some of these old churches with the stained glass windows. There's a reason behind that. It says that when I walk in here, something has changed. There's something about this place. Before I even enter into worship, I'm preparing my mind. There's a reshaping going on. But they also saw the wall that was rebuilt, and they remembered the scorn of people like Sanballat and Tobiah. You know, back in chapter 4, we talked about Sanballat, and uh, we, we talked about how he talked down on the Jewish people. Tobiah, same thing with him. The Bible says that when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? He asked, he says, will they offer sacrifices? He asked, will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, indeed, even if a fox climbed on what they were building, he would break down that stone wall. They're walking, they're seeing, and they're remembering but here it is, Grace, and th these memories aren't all about victory and triumph. Oh, it's not all like happy and go lucky. They remember the shame they felt when being ridiculed by other nations. They saw and they remembered what brought about this sense of lament, which is a good thing. You know, they, they lamented for the destruction of the holy city. Lamented for the sin and rebellion against God that caused it. They lamented for the shame of the Hebrew people. They lamented for the lives lost during that Persian oppression and occupation. Even in the processional, even in making their way to celebrate the Lord, there's more than enough room for solemn reflection. Even in worship. Perhaps we would do well to sit in silence more often as one body. To weep corporately, Tim, with those who weep. To mourn openly with those who mourn. There are aspects of our recent history that we ought to lament, even as we navigate through reflection on these things. We ought to see, we ought to allow this lament to help us to see that God does bring people out. We ought to see that God does restore. We ought to see that God does rebuild, but also we have to remember that he has rebuilt. He has restored before. Some people say it like this, if he did it before, he can do it again. Same God right now, same God back then. That's what modern worship expresses here in the western part of the world. They sometimes lack that. Sometimes we get too far away from our roots. Warren Wiersbe says it like this. In some churches, the kind of worship being practiced is like a bouquet of flowers, attractive, but not enduring. Why? Because like the bouquet, this kind of worship has no roots, and without roots, it will eventually die. If it's already dead but looks alive, it could masquerade as a living ministry for a very long time. He says, in their commendable desire to be contemporary, these churches have isolated themselves from history and created unbalanced ministries that usually produce unbalanced worshipers. Even more, these churches are growing a generation of believers who have little or no understanding of their Christian heritage and who are laboring under the delusion that God never really did anything great until their church came along. He concludes and says, yet worship must involve both the heritage of the past and the opportunities of the present. Otherwise, our churches will have no future. It's interesting because these same folk build and craft their liturgies and what they observe on Sunday largely to attract people, put butts in the seats, you know. But as Leander C. Jones says, the object of worship is not evangelism. 
And yet we still run into people who will ride all across Birmingham trying to find a space where they feel freed from tradition. But tradition, brothers and sisters, is not a bad thing. No, Zach, as a matter of fact, tradition is a large part of what brings us all together. Victoria, I guarantee you that over 90% of the people in this room are very, very traditional. That's some. How many of y'all celebrated Thanksgiving last year? Now, a trick question. Raise your hand if you went and had Thanksgiving dinner last year. Raise it high. Raise your hand if you had Thanksgiving dinner five years ago. What about 10 years ago? Wait a minute now. You, you mean to tell me that, you know, you people who, some people who want to be free from the tradition, you mean to tell me you've gone to the same place, had the same food, at the same time every year or almost every year for over a decade? And heaven forbid somebody changed the menu. Then you all messed up. See, we've all got our particulars. Uh -huh. But today, uh, the, the average church, uh, the, the new age church, the, 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 uh, there are some people who they use tradition as a pejorative, almost in this negative sense. Some people feel as though we have to disconnect from the past in order to reach the future generations. Some people automatically reject any notion of tradition. It's like a conditioned reflex, like those Athenians in Paul's day. Paul says in Acts 17, verse 21, these people spend their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. But hear me, Shannon, as we continue to grow and as we continue to gather, Jess, uh, we must realize that in a day and age where folks are always clamoring for some new thing, tradition is not our enemy. Tradition is not the problem. There's a difference between tradition and, and traditionalism. L. Spencer Smith says it this way, tradition celebrates the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism elevates the dead faith of the living. God is calling us to something more than stale and stagnant observances in the name of some culturally relevant or relative form of orthodoxy. But he's also calling us to more than just highly energized emotional calls to people rooted in entertainment and enjoyment and then lazily described as evangelistic. These two ends of the spectrum are mediated wonderfully in the text. You've got this zealous worship rooted and grounded in a solid understanding of who God is based on how he has revealed himself through history. And they also had a sanctioned purpose to praise him with joy because they took time through that liturgical portion and process of seeing and remembering. But, you know, expressing joy is scary, isn't it? Raising your hands and shouting hallelujah, it's, it's frightening. You know why? Because it requires us to be vulnerable. It requires vulnerability. Jason, it requires us to be known. It's hard because the moment you engage in this exercise of surrender, and that's what it is. You run the risk of being fully known, fully open to critique, mocked, or even ridiculed. But think about how David looked at that. Understand that those opportunities are moments in which we are shaped. There's a reason we come to confess sin on a regular basis. There's a reason why we partake of the table. This is why Jesus says, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. I saw this movie um, uh, last Monday for the first time, Good Will Hunting. I've never seen it before, all right? 
and it was all right. You know, Robin Williams made the movie. You know, it's all about you know Ben Affleck and Matt Damon trying to talk about how hard they had it coming up in Boston. I don't really care about that. But Robin Williams' character, um, I think his name was Sean. He's talking to to Will Hunting, and, and if you if you've seen the movie, Will Hunting, he's a he's a know-it-all. He's a he's a brilliant man. You know, he's a genius, and everyone around Will knows he's a genius because he would use his knowledge, his his charm, and his charisma as a barrier to keep people from actually getting to know who he was. And Sean, Robert Williams' character, he, his therapist, he's had enough of it. Listen to this exchange between Sean and Will. Sean says, I thought about what you said to me the other day about my painting. I stayed up half the night thinking about it, and something occurred to me. I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep and haven't thought about you since. But do you know what occurred to me? Will says, no. Sean says, you're just a kid. You have not the faintest idea what you're talking about. And Will says, in his uh, arrogant way, why, thank you. And then Sean says, it's all right, because you've never been out of Boston. Will says, no. Nope. And Sean says, so if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. The life work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at the beautiful ceiling, seen that. If I asked you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus about your personal favorites, but you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. And I'd ask you about war, and you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more, unto the breach, dear friends, but you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watched him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I'd ask you about love, and you'd probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. You've never known someone that could level you with her eyes. You never thought that God has put an angel on earth here just for you, and you wouldn't know what it's like to have that love for her, be there forever through anything, through cancer, and you wouldn't know about sleeping and sitting up with the, in the hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see it in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you've loved something more than you love yourself, and I doubt that you've ever dared to love anybody that much and look at you. When I look at you, I don't see an intelligent, I do see an intelligent, confident man, but I also see a cocky, scared kid. You're a genius, Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you, but you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting. Will, you're an orphan, right? <clears throat> and now Will, he's just silent, he's just nodding. Sean says, you think I know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? I think some of us are like Will. We think we've got it all figured out. We've got a handle on God. We can spout off quotes from Piper and Ralph West and Jonathan Edwards and Augustine and Spurgeon and all, all that. Some of us think we can theologize our way around worship. But let me tell you something. If your doctrinal alignment doesn't lead you to some joy, something ain't right. Wow. I, I can promise you, family, that your feelings, even your sense of emotionalism, or your sense of orthodoxy does not encapsulate God. If there's anything we ought to gain from this passage today, it's that biblical worship will bring three things. It'll bring a conviction from reflection. It'll bring courage from reassurance. 
about what? That Christ is our redeemer and our restorer. We ought to be convicted. We ought to have some zeal when we come to, when we come to worship because we've reflected not just on who God is, but what he's done in and around my life. The old church would say, when I think about the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for me, my soul cries out, hallelujah, thank God for saving me. But we also ought to have courage because we're reassured that Christ is my identity. So I have courage when I lift up my hands and I praise the Lord and I, and I give God praise and I confess my sin. I have courage that Christ will bring about the finished work that he began in me. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Now unto him who's able to do exceeding and abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now unto him who's able to uh, keep me from falling and to present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I've got confidence and courage and conviction because I remember what God has said about himself in scripture. I remember how he's been there in my life when I've fallen short time and time again. I remember because I've taken time to see. Let us pray.